night. Glad to see your smiling faces. In your Bibles, let's open up to Luke 23, please. Luke 23 is a chapter we're going to be reading from tonight, and so I'd like for you to open your Bibles and read along with us Luke 23. That's not going to be on the screen, and I'd like for you to read it in your text, whether that's on a phone or a tablet or in your Bible. Open to Luke 23. We'll be there in just a moment. To all of our visitors, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. There are some from a lot of different places, some familiar faces I haven't seen in some time, and I'm glad that you're here, that you've joined us on this great Saturday night to spend time worshiping God. I hope you had a good day. Tim and I were on the road a long time today, but we're glad to spend time together. Thank you for giving me that gift of spending time with Tim and and the gift of spending time with you. We're going to talk about another centurion tonight. Last night we talked about a centurion who had some incredible faith, made some really neat statements about his faith to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. We're going tonight to a different centurion. We're going to the scene of the cross, to a man who watched Jesus die. We noticed last night centurions were officers of the Roman army placed in charge of a hundred different soldiers. Men of prominence, men of power, men of wealth, men of great reputation, the backbone of the Roman army. This man is what's fascinating. On a typical day, he would have been in charge of a hundred soldiers, leading them into battle. But on this particular day, he's leading a four-man death squad up Calvary's Hill. This man undoubtedly had seen men die. Certainly, he had put people to death himself. And so he had heard death cries as pain overcame, or as misery, death overcame their pain. And so he had heard people curse their mother and curse their father and curse every god under existence and curse the, the day that they were born. He had seen people die, but there was something different about this night, something different about this afternoon, this Friday afternoon on Calvary, because there was something about the way that Jesus died that led this centurion to drawing two powerful conclusions. Here's what he drew. Mark 15, 39, he says, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And it's Luke's account that says that when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And so there was something about the way that Jesus died that led the centurion to believing not only is he innocent, we killed an innocent man, we just put to death the Son of God. So I want to start there with you. Let's journey through this together. What did this man see and what did he hear that would lead him to drawing this conclusion that he killed the innocent son of God? And I think there's a lot of things we could put on here. Here's a couple for your notes if you're taking notes on the card. Number one, he would have heard the claims of Pilate. If he had been around Jesus, following him through the proceedings, he would have heard Pilate and all the things he said before the crowd, such as a statement in Luke 23 and verse 22 when he says that Pilate said to them for the third time, Why? Why crucify him? What what, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. Well, here's the thing. That's your boss. There's a governor, and he's saying there's no guilt in him. There's no reason to put him to death. In fact, you remember Matthew's account? He stands before the crowd, and he washes his hands. He says, it's on you. It's on you. And they say, the blood be on us and on our children. So here's Pilate. His superior, and he is claiming, uh, Jesus doesn't deserve to die. There's the words of the thief. This takes us to Luke, 20, Luke 23. Luke 23, we hear the words of the thieves on the cross. Matthew's account, when we read them, makes it appear as if both thieves are cursing Jesus, and they are. But Luke's account shows us that one of the thieves had a change of heart. That's what we're picking up here. This is Luke 23. It says in verse 
39, one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we are suffering justly, for we received what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And it was Jesus who said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you should be with me in paradise. Incredible. Incredible statements here, isn't it? First, notice, he, like Pilate, says he didn't deserve to die. He says to the other thief, it's obvious we're getting what we deserve. But this man, this Jesus, he's innocent. Now think about this. You're on the cross. You're dying. You have nothing to gain through anything that you're going to say. No one's going to let you go. Your destiny is death. He has nothing to gain through anything he says here. And so he claims the truth. He says, this man, this Jesus, he's innocent. But you also notice what he said down there in verse 42. It's a simple little verse. But boy, this thief had some incredible faith about Jesus. Some understanding of, of Jesus. Three simple things he says. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Number one, he believed Jesus was a king. It's king. Kingdom means rule. And so he understood Jesus is a king. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. He understood who Jesus was. This man is no ordinary man. He's king. Secondly, he believed somehow Jesus is going to live beyond this, beyond this cross. I mean, here's a spoiler alert. No one lives beyond Calvary. No one lives beyond the cross. That's the point of the crucifixion. It leads you to death. But he says, remember me when you come. Somehow he understood or believed that Jesus would be able to, to live beyond this moment. And then he says, remember me when you come. Showing that somehow he believed that Jesus would be able to bless him and help him in the future. Whether that meant an eternal life, or whether that meant that he would be resurrected. All it is that he, is that he understood something was going to, to change beyond, beyond this cross. It was not going to be the end for this man, not for Jesus. And standing right by, underneath that cross, is a centurion who's hearing this exchange, all the words that are going back and forth. You also have those who are walking by, the mocking words of the crowd. And so those who passed by that Calvary's hill, they lifted up their mocking words at Jesus. It says in verse 36, the soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 35 talks about the people who stood looking by and even the rulers, they were sneering at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now you know as well as I do, every caricature has an element of truth. It's not all false. And so here they're taking Jesus' words and they're throwing it back in Jesus' face. But that's the point. They're taking Jesus' words. And so here is the centurion, and he's hearing Jesus' own words being thrown back at him in mockery. But think about this. He is hearing people calling him Christ. He is hearing people calling him king. And even if they're using it for mockery, that's what he's hearing. This man called himself Christ. This man called himself king. He's hearing these words. And in all of this, in all the curses and all the abuse, what perhaps is the most grand testament of who Jesus is, it's the fact he didn't sling it back. It was Peter himself who said that while he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus did not curse their cursing. In fact, what may be one of the greatest evidences of who this was on the cross is what he did say. 
There are seven powerful statements Jesus utters while on the cross. And they're not words that one says when they're dying. They're not, one, they're not words you hear from a man hanging on the cross. And so this centurion heard Jesus offer grace and forgiveness to the very crowd who put him up there on the cross. He heard Jesus himself offer hope even to a thief. He heard Jesus express great words of concern for his mother standing nearby. More concern for his mother's well-being than his own. He heard Jesus quoting the scripture, not only making reference to the psalm, but, but then ultimately, if he didn't know the scripture, showing his relationship with this God. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And twice Jesus doesn't just call him God, he calls him Father. Father, he has a special relationship with the Father. And what are Jesus' last words when on the cross? Do you remember those three words? It is, it's finished. And so here's the man hearing all these words, and it's being clear, dead men don't say this. Dying men, criminals, they don't say these kind of words. And it's finished? Was this any accident? Was it a tragedy? Was this some sort of a plan concocted? Who is this dying on this cross? And then you add to all this, everything that took place when Jesus died on the cross. Some incredible things took place when Jesus was on the cross. And so Matthew 27, 45 says, At the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. In the middle of the day, boom, complete darkness, cannot see. And then you have in verse 51 of Matthew 27, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so that curtain, that thick, heavy curtain, tore from heaven to earth, from God to man, split in two. And then it says there was an earthquake. And that's not, I'm feeling some tremors. Kind of a little shaky. No, this is rocks were splitting. A heavy earthquake took place. And then you add to the fact down in verse 52 of Matthew 27 that the tombs were opened. The tombs were opened and the dead were raised. And so rightly then, when you add all this together, everything that he has heard from Jesus, what he has heard from the crowds, what he heard from the thief, what he heard from Pilate, what he saw all around them, it's no question then. Then in verse 54 it says the centurion and those who are with him. Those keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now think about that phrase in yellow. They became truly frightened. Why would he be afraid? Well, go back to the two statements he made. That from Mark and that from Luke. Number one, I know I just put to death an innocent man. Number two, that innocent man was the Son of God. So here's a man trembling at the cross, realizing what it was he had just done. That's faith. That's faith. Now, I want to take a little tangent with you, if you will, for a moment. We're going to come back to Centurion in a moment, but I want to take you on a little journey and talk about what we learn about faith from the Centurion. I think he teaches us some incredible lessons about our faith. There are some who believe that faith is belief apart from any kind of reason or evidence or proof. All local passages like 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 that we, we walk by faith and not by sight or what Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so there are some who believe faith is just putting your trust in God without any real reason, without evidence, without proof. And if that's the way we see faith, like a shot in the dark, 
Trust me, we're going to find ourselves ill-prepared for the inevitable storms every one of us are going to face. Why don't you take a look at this picture for a moment? Take a look at that picture. Okay, question for you. How many of you, first thing you saw when you saw that picture is the lighthouse itself? Let me see your hands. Let me see the lighthouse, first thing you looked at. I love it. I love lighthouses. I love the concept. I love their design. And so here's this beautiful lighthouse intending to shine its light to help those ships get into where they need to go. Just incredible. How many of you saw the rock it was built on, that big, sturdy rock? No one tonight. That's okay. It is a cool rock, the sturdy foundation. Makes you wonder, how did they build that out there? Don't you wonder? But it has to be pretty sturdy because how many of you saw the waves? And they're crashing against that lighthouse, aren't they? It has to be a sturdy foundation. Look at those waves. Look how heavy that is or how strong those are. Do you know what that's a picture of? That lighthouse is your faith. That's you. Your faith, which is supposed to be a light into all the world. And those, those waves, the water, that's doubt. The storms of doubt that will crash against your beliefs and your faith in Christ. Here's the truth. Every one of us will face times in our lives when we question what it is that we believe. Every person faces doubt in their life. Times when we wonder, do I really know why I believe what it is that I believe? We question not only what it is that we believe, but why it is we believe what we believe. For some of us, the first time we really question is when we go off to college. We leave home and we go to college and we find ourselves really having to answer for ourselves, do I believe what I was taught from a youth? Do I believe what mom and dad taught me? Is that faith going to be mine? And you add to the fact that some of our kids go to these state universities, as I did, and those professors make it their aim. I'm going to wreck their faith. And so you have these biologists who paint this picture. If anyone who is intelligent, they hold to Darwin's evolution. They think it's true. And all the great scientists today, they all hold to Darwin's evolution. Or you have all those weird psychological things like there's no such thing as absolute truth. Which you want to ask, is that absolutely true? Are you sure about that? That's, anyway, we're not going to go down there. But that's for some people where that's tested. It's in college. They go away and they wonder, am I really going to take the faith that I've been handed the things that I've been learned and taught, am I going to make it mine? And so for a lot of us, the first time we are tested by doubt is college. But for some of us, we made it through college. Maybe we went to a Christian university, a place where faith perhaps is encouraged. And there's times that they hit the storms of doubt is when they get someone, maybe a family member or a friend or a coworker, and they say, hey, do you want to study the Bible? And we go, Yeah. That's evangelism. Yes, I'm ready for this. Let's study the Bible. And so we get together with that person and they share a belief with evidence. And I can't answer it. In fact, they have proof. They have book, chapter and verse. That's what we were taught, book, chapter and verse. And they have that. And they share this view and it makes sense. And I go home shaken thinking I couldn't answer that. That sounds right. And if they're right on this and I'm wrong, what else don't I know? What else could I be wrong about? I think sometimes where doubt hits a lot of people is when they meet their friends or their family and they know the scripture and they share a view I'm not ready for. I wasn't prepared for. And then there's some. And the, the waves of doubt that they get, it's not, is there a God? Or is the Bible the word of God? The waves that they get are more about the character of God. Well, they know that there is a God. And we sing that God is love and that he is good. But, but when I have a loved one who's sick, 
And then that loved one dies, and I have to bury someone who means a lot to me. For a lot of people, that's when they wrestle with, how could a good God let this happen to me? Why didn't he save her? Why didn't he heal him? If we say God is good, why wasn't he good to me here? Now here's the thing. John the Baptist, John 1, 29, John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had doubts. There's a time when he was in prison and he sent his disciples to go to Jesus and they asked him, Are you the Christ or are we supposed to be looking for someone else? Are you really him? And then Peter, an apostle, He's with Jesus. He's hearing everything that Jesus has taught. You remember he's on the water. He had enough faith to get out of the boat on the water. There's your faith. He's walking on the water and then he sees the waves and he starts to sink. You remember what Jesus said to him? Oh, you little faith. Why do you doubt? Why did you doubt? And then Thomas, right? That's not his name to us. Poor Thomas, when we meet him in heaven, we're going to say, oh, doubting Thomas. I know you. He's doubting Thomas to us because that's how we know him. Jesus is alive. And you remember what he says? Unless I touch and unless I feel, I'm, I'm not going to believe. So here's the thing, brethren. If, if John the Baptist had doubts, and if Peter had doubts, and if Thomas had doubts, should we be surprised, brethren, if there are times that we have questions about why it is we believe what we believe? If we have doubts? The question is not, are there going to have times when we have doubts? The question is, what do we do with our doubts? Because doubt doesn't have to be a bad thing. Our doubts can lead us to having a greater and stronger faith than ever before if, if we use our doubts to research and deepen and strengthen the belief that we had in the first place. But trust me, if we don't handle our doubts appropriately, doubts can wreck and destroy our lives and those around us. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Go with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a great example of how, how to handle your doubts correctly. Because the psalmist in Psalm 73 had some doubts. Psalm 73 shows us how do you handle doubts in your lives. Here's his doubt. We're starting in Psalm 73 in verse 1. He said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there's no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plague like mankind. Here his trouble is, I know God is good and he's good to his people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Why is it that wicked people, why are they blessed? And really where that thinking can take you is, if God blesses bad people, why do I trouble living a good life? If I can live wicked and be blessed, why live good? Why do what God wants me to do? He had doubts. Let's see what he does about it. Verse 15, he withheld his doubts from a younger crowd. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's the thing. If you have questions about why you believe, what you believe, questions about your faith, don't suffer alone. Never feel like you should suffer alone. I, I just don't feel like I can tell anyone. That's not it. You have to tell someone. These doubts won't go away. They'll get larger and they'll get deeper. Share them with someone. But you need to be careful who you share them with. He did not share them with the younger generation, those who were young in the faith. Because to share your doubts with someone who's not stable in their faith or new to the faith might cause them to doubt and they may not get out of it. You might wreck their faith. Go to someone who's stable. Go to someone who's strong. Go to someone who has been at this for a long time and knows why it is they believe what they believe. He withheld his doubts from a younger crowd. 
And then you see, he continued to search for the answer. Verse, verse 16. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He pondered to understand it. He was thinking it. He was trying to reason it through. He was still trying to find the answer. That's the thing. If I don't know it, if it's not coming to me, I don't need to think in my mind, well, if I can't think of it, there must not be an answer. I've thought about it. I've studied on it. I can't figure it out. There just must not be an answer. That's not true. Guess what? There's some people smarter than us, some people who know the answer. And so guess what? He continued to search. He continued to study. He continued to try and find out and reason. And that's the best thing you can do for your doubts. Research. Dig deep. Find the answers. Continue to look for the answer. And then he continued to worship. Verse 17, it says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then, it was only then I perceived the end. Brethren, this is a really good lesson here verse, from verse 17. Maybe I've got questions about the Bible. Maybe I've got questions about God. Don't take your questions or your doubts out on the Lord. Maybe it's my struggle in understanding. Maybe I've got some things I'm having a hard time really, really getting a grasp of, of understanding. But why am I taking that out on God? Why am I stopping to worship Him? Why have I stopped praying? Why have I stopped living the life that He's called me to live? I may have questions, but I need to be in the sanctuary. I need to keep on worshiping. I need to keep studying. I need to keep reading. I need to keep praying. I need to keep living, living that holy life. And in fact, it was only coming to worship in which he found the answer. When he came into the sanctuary, it all made sense. And so if I've got questions, I've got doubts, keep on worshiping. Keep on reading. Keep on studying. Keep on praying. Keep on being who God wants you to be. Don't take your problems out on God. Keep on living the life he wants you to live. In fact, it might come through studying and worship that you'll find your answer. And then ultimately when I find it, when the truth is made clear, he admitted the wrong in his thinking and we need to do the same. Verse 21, he says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He says, God, I was reasoning like an animal. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't right. And I was wrong. And when we find the truth, wherever the truth may be, whatever it may be, whether it's what I, I thought originally or it's different, I need to accept the truth and put it into practice in my life. How do you handle your doubts? You don't ignore them. They won't go away. You confront them and you handle them and you look for the answer. I really want to focus on that second one on the board. He continued to search for the answer. One of the best things you can do if you have questions or doubts about your faith is not to doubt your faith. Doubt your doubts. Question them. Research them. Dig deep and find the answer. Now you may be wondering, how on earth does this take us back to the centurion? What does this have to do with the centurion? Let me ask you a question. The faith of the centurion in Luke 23, did that faith come from his parents? His parents sat down and taught him about Jesus and who he was. Did that faith come from a, a mountaintop experience? God gave it to him in feelings, and he just kind of had this, this special moment, these inklings, the Spirit entered his heart, and, and God gave him faith. Is that how it happened? How did he have faith? Well, he thought about what he saw and what he heard. He weighed the evidence, and he drew the conclusion. When, when I see all of this together, this has to be the Son of God. Brethren, our faith is no different. It's not merely what our mom and dad give us. It's not based on a feeling or a whim. Our faith is based on evidence. What we see, what we read, what we have weighed and what we have determined, that's what faith comes from. And so look at this. John 20, verse 31. John said he wrote his gospel. That account 
These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He wrote it so we could have faith. What's Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? And so when I read these words and I read about God and I read about what He has done and I read about Christ, and I think about it, I think about it, is that true? Does this make sense? And when I see its truth and recognize its truth and I put it into my life, that's faith. It's reading and thinking and measuring and, and considering and then trusting and believing. Look at this, Acts 17, when Paul is preaching. According to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ, the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this, Christ, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He's giving evidence. He's giving proof. There's a reason for you to believe why it is what it is you believe. In fact, that's the way God made the world. No one has excuse by the way God made the world. He gave us evidence. He gave us proof. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all, every person are without excuse. That's proof. That's what faith comes from. Just as centurions weighed and measured what he heard and saw, brethren, we consider these words. We consider the revelation of these words and the revelation of creation around us, and we draw the conclusion there has to be a God, and this is truth. You know what all the stats are saying today? 75% of our young people, when they leave home, they're going to leave the Lord. That's what numbers are saying. I don't know if that's true. Numbers, you can make numbers say anything. Because you have a lot of fantastic young people here. And I think we've got some pretty good ones down in Dallas. But I think you have to admit with me that there are a lot of young people that when they leave home and they go off to college, there are a lot of young people who do leave their faith. Have you seen it? You know what they're contributing as to one of the major reasons as to why they're leaving the faith? They were taught what to believe. They were not taught why. They're talked out of what they believe because they were never talked into it in the first place. In fact, I think there's a lot of Christians today who know what they believe. They just don't know why they believe it. And instead of researching, they're afraid to. They're afraid to look into the reason as to why it is we believe what we believe. It's kind of like smushing a spider. You, know, you smush it under a rug. You're just afraid to look up because you don't know what you're going to find. I think there's some people who think... If I look into if the Bible really is God's word, or if these are the right books, or if it's inspired, I'm going to find all this error. I'm going to find all this fault. I'm going to find that all of it's untrue. Here's the truth, brethren. The only thing that has to fear careful and critical examination is error. Truth has nothing to hide. Truth can be examined. Truth can be cross-examined. Truth can be critically viewed. And so Paul would say, whatever it is, test it. Every preaching, every teacher, every person who stands behind this pulpit, it ought to be tested what it is he's saying by the measure of God's word. In fact, even Paul, when he came to Berea, those brethren there were testing everything that he said by the word of God. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether the things he was saying were so. And so everything you read, everything that you hear, every belief that is aired or lifted before your ears, you test it, you weigh it, you examine it, you consider it. Is it true? The book of John 10, I love what Jesus says here. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. I love what he's saying here. He says, I'm saying I'm the Son of God. But here's the thing. If I don't give you proof that I am the Son of God, don't believe me. If I'm not giving you the evidence that I am the Son of God, you shouldn't believe me. But if I do, 
If I do the works, even though you don't like me, even though you don't want to believe in me, believe in the works, believe in the proof, follow the evidence. Where does it lead? Where does it lie? Remember what he said to John? John's disciples came to him and they said, are you the one? Are you a disciple? Are we supposed to, or are you the Christ? Or are we supposed to look for someone else? He said, go back and tell John, what do you see? Look at those who are cured. Look at the witness of my power. Tell John what it is that you see. Tell him of the proof. You ready? Is there a God? A divine being that created the world by his power? Is there a God? Is he Jehovah? Is Jesus the Son of God? Was he just a good man? Was he a prophet or a teacher? Was he divine? Was he God's son? Do we know? Is the Bible God's words? Is the Bible you have complete? Do we have every book we need to have? Are we missing some? Do we know every word in here comes from God? We sure man didn't invent it. Did Jesus rise from the dead? You sure the apostles didn't steal him? Stole him at night and took him away. How do we know? Is it a myth? Is it a legend? Are we sure it's true? What about the church? Boy, there's a lot of questions here. Are we doing things right? The way that we worship? The way that we are organized? I think there ought to be one pope over the church named Jordan Shouse, and he makes all the rules and the organizations. Prove me wrong, right? Is this right? And again, the question is not what do you believe about this? The question is why? Why do you believe that? Do you believe that there's a God? Yes, I do. Why? Well, because the Bible. Okay, okay. Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Yes, I do. Why? Because I believe it is. Is that good enough? Is that good enough for you to weigh your eternal destiny upon? Is that strong enough to stand against the storms of doubt that will come? When someone says, I've got proof to show you the Bible is not God's word. I've got proof to show you that book is full of errors. It's just believing this is God's word enough then to stand against that storm? Am I ready? Am I prepared? It's not what do you believe. It's why. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not merely what mom and dad give us. It starts there. Faith is built on the proof, on the evidence, on what God has supplied for us to know what is right and what is true. Don't stop examining. But here's the thing. If you're going to do your, your research, if you're going to do your examination, it needs to be fair. And I think that's where a lot of young people get into trouble. I said, oh, they like to research. They like to read and they like to go out examining, but they don't make it a fair research. So here's the thing. When you go to college, your professor will say, I want you to read about Darwin's evolution. Some will say, I'm a Christian. I don't read that kind of stuff. No, you should read it. You should read about Darwin's evolution. You should know it. Understand what it is that Darwin was teaching. But here's the thing. That can't be the only book you read. That's not fair. That's not a fair view. That's not being fair with the subject. And so you can read about Darwin's evolution. You can read what atheists are writing. But you need to read books like this. What about the signature in a cell? Or Darwin's Doubt. That's a great book to read about Darwin's evolution. Or I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And of course, of all things that you're reading, the balance must be I'm reading a lot more of this book than any other book. I'm getting in the Word of God to let this be my worldview, this be my lens through which I'm seeing it and receiving the world. I'll tell you this. The most I have learned as a preacher in my studying and in my research is when someone will come to me and they'll say, Brother Shouse, Mr. Shouse, I'd like to study with you. And I'd say, that's great. I look forward to it. 
is I want you to read my book, the book of, of the churches I belong to. And I always say, great, I'd like to do it. Let me read your book. And I'll read it. I mean, I'll be honest, there's times I want to take that book and rip it in half and burn it and throw it in an ash key. But, but I'll read the book. And then I know where they're coming from. And I can meet with them and say, you know, I read your book. And there's some good things in that book. There's some things I, I probably agree with. But, you know, I notice in reading your book, there's some contradictions between that and, and this book. There's a time when I was in Chattanooga, there was a man who was believing I was in sin because I did not observe the Sabbath day, the worship on the Sabbath day. And I told him with complete honesty, I said, Joe, if you can show me through the scripture that I must observe and keep the Sabbath, I promise you I will start it immediately. I will preach it on Sunday and I will put it into immediate practice. And I meant it, brethren. You know why? We're not here to uphold tradition. We're not merely doing what we're doing because it's always been done this way. We're not doing this to make our moms and dads happy. We're doing this because we believe it's right. Because we know it's right. Because we have a reason and a proof to show that it's right. That's what that's about. Keep reading. Keep researching. Fortify your faith because those storms of doubt are going to come. Those questions are going to stop. Keep on fortifying your faith and building your faith. But here's the thing. Are we going to have every answer to every question? No, no, and we don't need to teach that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to man. I mean, don't you wonder when Jesus stooped down in John 8 and he wrote in the sand, don't you wish you knew what he wrote? I mean, who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? Don't say Paul. I don't know. I'd like to know. I'd like to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Don't you wish you knew? There's something we're not going to know. But you know the things we can know? The things that we can have a firm stance on, what God has revealed. What he has in his word. And so just because I can't know all answers, does that mean I can't know truth? I can't have a, a solid, firm faith? No, not of course. Of course we can. Of course we can. That's why Jesus would say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. Keep on seeking that truth. But notice, who is this incumbent upon? Me. Me. God has truth, but I've got to ask. I've got to seek. I've got to knock. That means I've got to read the book. I've got to crack it open. I've got to study. I've got to ask questions and then seek the answer. I need to be here when there's teachers helping me better understand and apply this message. That's on me. Can I know the truth? Jesus said he can in John 8. But you've got to come asking. You've got to come seeking. You've got to come knocking. That's on you. That's on me. Here's a word to some parents and grandparents about your kids. Jude 22 says, be merciful on those who doubt. When you've got your kids who come home from school and they say, I'm not sure about God. My teacher was talking about evolution, and I'm, I'm not sure about that. Work on your not freaking out face. What do you mean? <laughs> I'm going to call David and Tim. We're going to get the, oil, the elders and some oil, and we're going to get this out of your system. Work on not freaking out face. Best thing you can do for your home is allow it to be a question-free zone. But you might have a lot of questions about what you've heard from your friends or your teachers. There's no questions off limit here. You've got questions about evolution. You've got questions about, about things you've heard from your friends. Ask them. Ask them. Hang off on holding that belief. Hang off on, on taking that view. You've got some questions. I'm glad, I'm glad you've got questions. That's how we learn. Bring your questions to mom and dad, and we're, we're going to study and, and read them together. Let's be honest, folks. The questions aren't getting any easier. All the things with transgender, that's not easy to answer. 
all the things about homosexuality and, and the changes within our society, that's, that's not getting easier. The best thing we can do for our kids is to help them realize you learn by asking questions. It's okay to have questions. You're going you're to wrestle with that at one point in your life. What I want you to know is this is a good zone. This is a good place to ask those questions. And together we're going to find the truth. We'll look for the truth. And wherever the truth lies, wherever it is, that's where we're going to be. That's where we'll go. All this goes back to this, that neat picture of that, that lighthouse. Because James taught that those who live in doubt, those who exist in doubt, they find themselves in a very unstable place within their thinking and their reasoning. He says that those who pray, let them ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Unstable. You're not on firm ground. You don't have a solid stance. You don't have a solid world view. You're unstable. We don't live in doubt. And so maybe if you're here tonight and you have questions, that's great. It's great to have questions, but you don't stay there. You don't live there. You don't live in doubt. Doubt only grows stronger. And for some people, it grows worth. It cripples their faith. They can't make a conclusion. They can't draw a solid answer. You don't live in doubt. You move to a solid faith where Paul would say that we are steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Those are great words about my faith. I know what it is I believe, and I know why I believe it. I know it. I know who I'm believed. And I can show you why it is I believe what it is that I believe. I've got a strong, immovable faith. So my challenge to you tonight, brethren, if you've got some questions you're wrestling with, you've got some doubts in your heart, Chase them, tackle them, research them, challenge them with the word of God. You might have a lot, start with one. You might need some help, and there's some people here tonight that will help you. You've got two fine preachers and, a, and three great elders, and I know that they would love to sit down and talk with you and pray with you. But if you're here tonight and you've got a lot of questions, don't feel bad. Questions is how we learn. And you can come through this storm and through these questions and through these doubts with a stronger faith than you had before. I love one writer said it this way, doubt sees the obstacles, faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night, but faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step, faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes, but faith answers I. Move from doubt to faith. And if you need some help with that tonight, if you've got some questions you'd like to start answering, if you need some help just getting in the right direction, we're here to help you tonight. These pews are just for you. And so if we can help you tonight, come on forward as we stand and as we sing. Righteousness unto thee I come in weakness and distress. Hold my trembling hand, lest helpless I should fall. Oh,
and thy care. Clouds of doubt arise, and faith grows weak and small. Oh, hear me, Lord, hear me. Oh, hear me when I call. Hear my voice, O oh God, and cleanse my soul within. Mercy do I need for all my doubts and sins.